Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hiya, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Western Australia, Sovereignty Never Ceded. On this episode, I chat with the filmmaking duo Glenn Fraser and Amelia Foxen about their latest film, Mother Tongue, which screams at the upcoming A Night of Horror International Film Festival, alongside Ursula Dabrowski's The Devil's Work on September 28th at 6.30pm in Sydney. Mother Tongue tells the wickedly humorous tale of Alex, played by Kiara Gizzi, and Jade, played by Amelia Foxen, a couple who are trying to have a child yet struggle to do so. After trying all manner of methods and finding that biology is not on their side, they decide to turn to the realm of the occult with the assistance of suburban bloke Brian, played by Stephen Hunter, who works with his mastery on bringing a baby of some kind into their lives. Told with a darkly comedic stretch, alongside a trio of excellent performances that makes the struggle that Alex and Jade are collectively going through all the more believable, Mother Tongue is a treat of a film. I found myself laughing as much as I was repulsed and shocked. In the following interview, Glenn and Amelia generously discuss their working process together, outlining the importance of telling queer stories on screen, while also highlighting the need to tell varied stories about motherhood as well. They also talk about the creation of the Coastal Surge Film Festival and the support they've received from local governments to help create a busy film scene in their local region. To find more about Mother Tongue, make sure to visit the Facebook page. I'll stick a link in the show notes. And as well, if you're interested to listening or reading other interviews, head over to thecurb.com.au. In a couple of days, there will also be an interview with Jack Dignan, who's the director of Puzzle Box, which is also screening at a Night of Horror International Film Festival. And if you're interested in buying tickets or visiting uh, the film festival, then make sure to head over to the link in the show notes for that as well. For now, here is Glenn Fraser and Amelia Foxen talking about Mother Tongue. A what? A homunculus. This is an incredibly difficult and intricate process, acquiring a masterful knowledge of ancient lore and a consummate command of magical arts that only a conjurer of the highest order could possibly achieve. Luckily for you, I happen to be just that conjurer. Where did this idea of, of demonic babies and motherhood come from? The parenting thing was actually, I mean, that's where it all started. It started with an, an advocacy kind of thing that I wanted to get across, which was both kind of pro and anti-parenting. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends, female friends, who have opted not to have children, but they are still harassed on a re- regular basis. Like, have children, you won't feel fulfilled, you're not going to have a great, you know, this 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 thing that is still very present in society where women are told that they cannot have a fulfilling life unless they have children is 
such nonsense and it's also um I mean it's it's completely outdated it's archaic it's um it's offensive and uh we have too many humans so if we could all just lay off women that'd be great there was a little bit of, of that in there but also I wanted to highlight just how difficult the challenge of parenting can be because I think there's a lot of you know, perfection washing. Um, there's that kind of, oh, it's the most joyous, beautiful. And it is. It's an incredibly rewarding, joyful experience. But it's also extremely challenging. And I think all of the modern societal take on TikTok of it all being this perfect, wonderful, loving, you know, it makes a lot of parents feel like a failure. It makes people feel bad about themselves. And if you're not loving every single moment of it, and that's just not fair. So I think it's time to change the narrative. So there's a little bit of just highlighting just how difficult the task of parenting can be. And that's where it started. And then we started layering on top of that to build the story. And um, the homunculus is actually your idea, wasn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, I'm I'm a, an occult nerd. So for me, you know, a lot of the kind of uh, nerdy film history and, and uh, horror stuff is, is certainly bred very deeply into Amelia, but you might not have the kind of historicity to, to express it, but it's like, oh, I know what you're talking about. There. You need an homunculus in this. No, this no. Is going, What's this? <laughs> so we start going into all John Davies' ma manuals and, you know, um, Edward, um, Edward Kelly and all that kind of stuff and investigating all that, and she's like, the deeper she goes, the more she wants to know, of course. Yeah. And then we have, you know, certain friends in the um, in the occult world, I guess, that have a certain knowledge and a certain uh, history, historical kind of uh, precedent there as well, which is which is amazing to have this fabulous kind of network of people yeah. to draw from and say, listen, we're talking about this film, and they go, right, well, you need to read this and you need to explore that. Mm -hmm. So even though we we wanted a comic film, we wanted something light, we still wanted a, a certain integrity layering in there so, so, so the people who are kind of dabble in that field can look at it and go, oh, these guys have come from something here. They know what, what they're talking about here, yeah. even if we don't draw too deeply into it in the film. I think that's the thing. We both wanted to try, try and draw from some of the less cliched or, or overdone mythologies in, in horror. So if you go through, you know, everyone's done vampires to death. We've done zombies to death. What, what else is out there? And, and we've got, you can see a little bit of it behind us, but like libraries full of <laughs> crazy. crazy stuff, occult stuff, historical stuff, all the kind of interesting things. And we dig through them. We're just giant nerds, essentially. And we go between our books and all of the giant nerds that we know in our friendship group, we'll find all of the really interesting historical things to pull on and draw on um, for, for making something. That's where Homunculus came from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, of course, it, it fits perfectly into what Amelia wanted to do in terms of talking about the story of, you know, how do we how would we create a baby in this kind of uh, world? And I said, well, it has been done before. Yes. You know, in terms of that male psyche, you know, and here's a really good lesson on the patriarchy right here. So um, when when that kind of serves itself up on a platter, it's uh, it's a pretty extraordinary opportunity. Yeah. So she ran with it. As you're talking and and reframing motherhood and and the presentation of motherhood, there's almost as well this representation of what witchcraft can be and the occult can be, and that's what I enjoy because it is, you know, there is this notion of yes, you're creating something that might be evil but it might be also this loving little demon too and you know there's this this discussion uh it's not really a consent discussion but it's almost a discussion of like do you know what you're getting into you have to give up something of yourself to you know give over to allow this creature to exist and it adds this level of uh complexity which is really nice what was it like to be able to play with that kind of complexity of not just motherhood, but also, you know, with the, the occult? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? 
Oh, I'm glad you picked up on that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's something I really enjoy. It's actually the primary thing I wanted to play in. And in fact, when we take this concept from short film to television series, I'm going to be expanding on that particular subject matter in particular. It's going to be about the the questions behind parenting and what is when it's a good decision, bad decision, and, and when the adult comes into it, it's not necessarily like you said, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but everything requires sacrifice when it comes to parenting everything and so what are you willing to sacrifice and where are you willing to go and that's um and 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 in fact there's going to be a big question of what does make an appropriate parent or parenting style that will be kind of filtered throughout the the tv series we'll, we'll dig into that on a deeper level it's it's weird how easily parenting and the occult go together <laughs> blood 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 there's nothing there is nothing more almost alien about making a human being and raising a human being there's just it's a very bizarre unparalleled journey and so bringing supernatural into that it's it, i found that quite an easy easy blend because parenting is weird it is insane it is out of the range of anything else you've experienced so then, 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 that's an easy thing to blend, I find. Yeah, yeah, and it, it speaks to that kind of um, desperation to, you know, s- succeed in something that those kind of old school alchemists used to talk about with those Paracelsus or the, you know, John D types who were so desperate to prove themselves that they go to these extraordinary lengths of self-suffering and self-abnegation to, to kind of create these uh, these opportunities. They were often a ruse, obviously. But um, the fact that they would justify these things, kind of like that, that modern tale of parenting, yeah. justification at all costs, um, really comes out to it. So, yeah, it was an easier fit than, than either of us. But there's before. also the fact that when you have your own children, pretty much you're starting with a, a, a moral baseline of you've got to build their, their, them up to know good from, you know, good from, from bad mm-hmm. and, and right from wrong and that kind of thing. So similarly, if you're using the occult, you're channeling whatever energy you've summoned and you've got to try and corral that into a, the right position. So it's actually a really parallel journey. And, and as you said, you know, the, the idea of, you know, be careful what you wish for. I mean, it's generally one of the big things of any fairy tale. And uh, obviously, you know, we, we find ourselves pulled in so many different directions in the modern age, the way that we're going to look for satisfaction or inspiration or, you know, completion whatever it might be, an idea like this is really something that um, is, is is pulled out of all of these different directions. And the idea of the fairy tale is, is a perfect fit for it. It's like, yeah, you'll get it, but it won't be in the way that you think it's going to be. <laughs> Let's go then and kind of break down the, the opening scene then, which is this wonderful parallel discussion, this absolutely worn out, person is sitting there talking about this demon and then you you pull back and we reveal that it's a mother who's uh talking about her child can you talk about scripting that and also the i guess the 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 foundation of the parallel that we've just been talking about there between motherhood and and the occult as well yeah i mean that was easy to write (laughs) i it was one of those things where i wrote it knowing full well that every parent in the audience would go she's talking about a baby she's talking about a baby (laughs) You're like, uh-huh, the second it was kind of... It was like automatic writing when I was watching her do that. She was just like in that zone. It's just like, oh, I know it. I know the scene you're writing like. And that, that's what I was talking about before, that that advocacy for just how how unbelievably difficult it can be and how challenging it can be and what you actually go through as a parent in raising children. And, and I just wanted to get that out there, but also obviously to foreshadow what happens in the film and, and to give that, that, that comparison of 
the, the child rearing and they felt and it, it ended up being it's a setup and it's a tonal setup too of, of the shifts that we wanted to play with you know we think we've got an amazingly mature audiences these days and i think streaming you know the benefit of streaming has has, has really offered that that so many people are watching so many different tonally varied shows that so one of the big questions I had for Amelia when she was first writing it is just like, you know, the tonal ride and this is going to be really tricky because obviously we're, we're going to do some dark stuff, we're going to have some light stuff in there as well and some emotional stuff. Yeah, quite true. And, it, and it's going to, and, 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 you know, I really, I think we both fought for that idea that if it comes from a position of truth and integrity and then finding that really centred moral core, which is about the desperation for motherhood, the desperation to create something for ourselves, mm. complete ourselves, that everybody would relate to. And if we could bond an audience with those characters early on, usually with a bit, with a bit of humour, set up the idea that there's that sense of like, oh, here's dark, or it's a horror film, okay, great, horrific music, we're talking about a possession here, oh, hang on, we're about to switch, what's going on here? Yeah. And we... We buy the audience in at that point. It's really important to do that because these guys are going to go on quite a, uh, you know, varied kind of journey. So we want to make sure that we've got the audience there from the get-go and have some fun with them. Yeah, and it, I think it helps. It really starting somewhere kind of deep and dark and, oh, oh what's going on, then switching quite quickly to humour set the scene for that lightness that I really wanted to portray through the entire film. So I love that bit. Really wonderful opening. It's great. And as you're saying, it, it sets a tone for what we're about to go through. I'm curious if you can talk about the aspect of dark comedy and how you managed to create a mood on set that allowed for the balance of darkness and lightness to work so well. Oh, wow. We just had really cool people. We had really cool people. The cast and crew, all of them are, they all came with all of their passion and all of their talent, but it probably helps that they're all a bit nerdy as well. So they're all kind of friends of ours. It wasn't a hard sell. They just got it. They just fell into it. And, um, yeah, we were lucky. We were really lucky because the entire cast, the entire crew, everybody just was like a family. And um, we all had a similar passion for this project. And yeah, it, was, it wasn't a difficult sell at all. One of the traits of indie filmmaking, I think, is that if you, you never corral anyone to work with you, you literally go out and say, look, here's the script. You know, you, you might might know us or our work or whatever like that. And in, in this case, most of the people knew us. Here's the script. <clears throat> if you get it, great. If you don't, don't come and play because it's going to be a drag, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think by starting at the get-go like that, you, you're basically saying only come in if you can see what we're going to do here. And we want to always create a really wonderful atmosphere on set, and that's that's my kind of remit as a director to, to really create a sense of openness. Once we had that script as solid as we could, and, you know, credit to Amelia for being able to get something that really sang off the page, and when she was writing the character of Brian, for example, um, I said to her, look, I think I know the guy we could get for this. I've worked with him a couple of times. And he said, look, anytime you want anything, just give me a call. And I told her who she was. And she's a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. So she was like, what? You know, so we got it to him. And, you know, within, within minutes, he basically called up and said, "I'm this is just a crazy fucked up ride. I'm in, you know. <laughs> and, and I think... Yeah, you know, to, to to Amelia because she was able to create such well-rounded characters that that had a real richness to it. And even though Stephen is a great character actor, yeah, he's amazing. I know, and I know this for a lot of actors that that I've worked with, they haven't had their limits tested. They haven't really gotten to show what they're capable of. And mm. I think a story like this was able to do a lot of that for for Stephen Hunter because um, you know, he's incredible and he gifted us with a, a fantastic performance that he really brought a certain truth to. And again, he found that in, in the screenplay and he found that in the atmosphere that we wanted to create here that said, okay, we're, we're comfortable, we're solid with the, with the ground rules of the story itself. So we know the paradigm we've set up, play within that mm. and have some fun. 
And that gave everyone a really elastic kind of way of being able to present a really true evocation of where they could take that story within their own character. Yeah. I will also say that the Central Coast is where we drew almost all of our crew, like except for one or two people. The the locals here are all very chill people anyway, but there's this um, big network up here of, of filmmakers and quite a huge one, and we were able to draw from them, and they're all regional, they're all chilled out because it's kind of the, the attitude of the Central Coast, and so just bringing in people who are really talented but also the right kind of mentality for a chilled out and happy and but but also very proactive set yeah. it's just an amazing um resource to be able to draw from yeah. so few, that was helpful too yeah a few people mentioned that oh shouldn't you be shooting this in sydney because you only have access to more no stuff way. and i said well I mean, the, the advent of technology these days we can literally do the whole thing from here and you know we, we just borrow in what we, we need from outside and shut the whole thing in our suburb <laughs> and um yeah, and so it's it's proven it's possible, and and interestingly, the you know the the vibe that we want to push now is there's there's often a bit of support for you know regional filmmaking mm. to be able to get out there and try and do something that's not so city focused. You're based in in Perth, obviously, and and you know there's a great kind of focus around the capital cities, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, to do things. But, you know, a little film like this is, is the little film that could and did. So I want to talk about the, the choice to shoot as a short film and kind of the decision and process that goes behind creating a shorthand in a short film for a relationship. And after that opening scene, of course, we've got this wonderful sequence of this partnership and and the bond that they have with one another and everything is just this great shorthand of creating a foundation for who they are as characters and i'm curious if you can talk about how you managed to do that in a short film and make sure that we know exactly who these people are really quickly well funnily enough it was originally intended to be a feature film but there was a funding um opportunity from the central coast council um they've got a, a department called creative art central and they fund local art and um, so I, I shortened it because they were only funding short films. And so for that, I needed to get to the depth of the relationship between Alex and Jay, but quite quickly. I also needed to honour the reproductive journey that they go through because that, you know, anyone who's been through it knows that, you know, and especially when it fails in, in whatever way, it's it's an incredibly arduous and difficult thing to go through and it needed to be, that, that process needed to be honoured. So I... Honestly, this is where Fight Club comes into it. Uh, Fight Club's my favourite film of the world for, for so many reasons, but um, one of those reasons is that it messes with timelines and it layers information so that at, at any given time you're actually being told several parts of the story. You may not always necessarily know it or you might even discover later that you were getting several bits of information at once. But I kind of took that concept and thought, okay, I'm going to layer things. I'm going to layer things so you can see four years in 20 seconds, but it's going to have meaning. It's still going to look and feel like the whole story. And that's where that, that, that sequence came from. So it's several years in, in the making of, um, of, of that relationship. Easy thing to write, hard thing to shoot. That, that's where the skills of, of Glenn and, and Tom Gleason came into it to make it all happen. But also, I'll, I'll say this too, Brian was very clear in my head. The character of Brian. I knew Brian. I was in love with Brian from the get-go. I, I, he was always very special to me. Jade I understood entirely. Alex I had trouble with. I had trouble. I was just like, where is she coming from? But who is she on a deeper level? I There was just, I couldn't quite break through to who exactly she was until Kiara stepped in, Kiara Gitsi. And my God, she brought her to life. That was really important, having the right person play Alex, because um, that is a complex character 
who's going through an awful lot and there's a lot in subtext and Kiara just nailed it and she made Alex for me. So that was the the one thing I wasn't 100% on by the time I'd finished the script and we were going to shoot. I was just like, oh. But then, yeah, Imo Kiara Gitsi, bam, there's Alex. She mm. just, she fully formed that that character. So, such an honour honor to, to see someone take a character and just fill it out like that. And it's a great thing, Andrew, when when you're on set and, you know, that you, you're pretty comfortable with the words, you know, you, you know that the, the beginning and end of a sequence or a scene is, is, is solid and it's in place. So give the actors the freedom to be able to do that. And sometimes you've got to be unfussy about those things. And sometimes you just got to let the camera just sit and mm. just record, create the space for that. And um, and you credit to both Amelia and to Chiara. Who could, and Amelia's amazing like that because I think the neurodiverse side of her allows her to kind of take one hat off quite completely and put the other hat on and just step in, which is like, it freaks some of the some of the crew out a little bit because how from that scene where she's just had this crazy shit and go, how was that? Was that good? Do you want another one? How could this is like, this is like everything. You know, so it's wonderful to have that um, tool set that Amelia can draw from. It's a very, very powerful thing. But obviously not act, not all actors work in the same way. So you have to give them that space to be able to frame their own kind of journey in those moments. But, you know, you just need to, once the scene's done, you look across to the crew and if the crew are hooked, if the crew are believing in that, yeah. with all of the appurtenances around them, the lighting rigs and everything like that, if they're caught in the moment, then it's just like, okay, I've got to move on. Yeah. So, trust in that. Another huge part of it is Tiara and I are very, very close friends as well. So that trust meant that we could very quickly get straight to the characters and 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 and, and make everything happen. And we're both also on the autism spectrums. Long story short, when you're on the autism spectrum, you've basically human behavior has been a study for you since you were born because it doesn't come naturally to you. So you have to kind of work out what everybody's doing and what makes sense of how they work. And so you've been studying human behavior quite naturally from as, as long as you can remember. And so, uh, you know, you bring a couple of autistic people together on a scene, you'll, you'll get a very human performance because we've seen all the angles. And so that trust in our friendship and that neurospicy way of thinking seemed to make it quite a breeze actually to bring those those that relationship and those scenes to life. Quite fast working too, so as it needed to be with that sort of budget. Yeah, we didn't have a rehearsal period. We didn't have, we literally stepped on set, one, two takes, next scene. The one, point, two takes, next scene. And the point you made that. before about where the choice is to take something like a short, you know, which is not a traditional short, like under 10 minutes into a kind of mini feature in a way, or a short feature as we're calling it now, was a pitch that we had to make to the guys who were funding it because they had like 10 grand and um, they looked at the script, which was a long script, and they went, oh, there's a lot of sex scenes in here and a lot of swearing. <laughs> a traditional council, a traditional government body. So they're going to go, there's no way they're going to go with that. But they had a meeting with us and we said, look, and, and I'd made some tricky films before and made them kind of work. And they went, okay, now we trust we can do this and we're not going to get involved. Just, just here's your little bit of money, go ahead. And it was that little bit of trust that makes all the difference to be able to say, we can get this going, we can motivate people with it, a little bit of money here and there just to put on screen. Mm-hmm. And that was all, you know, I call it the drop in the, drop in the pond that allowed the ripples to spread, really. Yeah. And with the kind of people that I can draw into the fold in terms of other actors and people like that, crew members, it's one of those things that if people can believe, then we can make it work. Which is- and as you're talking about working with Tom Gleason as well, and uh, and I'm also thinking about the, you know, the production design aspect too, a lot of it really helps create the tone and informs the characters and things like that. And I'm curious if you can talk about making a really good looking 
film on a budget while also making sure that you've got that aspect of the production design that does inform the story, the characters, who they are and all this kind of stuff. How important is that to sell what you're doing? Extremely important. Extremely important. You can make an extraordinary piece of film, but if it doesn't look good, it won't be watched. It's, just, it's part of the deal. And that's why Tom's input was just absolutely invaluable because he brings with him decades of experience all of his incredible equipment. He works on a, a red monster camera, for example. Um, and and he's also got just a, a way of working that is rare among cinematographers. It, it's, it's really involved. So he gets involved at script level and he starts learning about the characters and, and what you're trying to achieve and where the story is going and he really understands the script. Then he wants to be involved in the planning phase. So by the time he gets to set, he knows the characters, he knows the story, he knows the feeling of a scene. So when he shoots, it's not just to point the camera and shoot scenario. It's very much a how can we get the most feeling out of this moment. Mm. Wonderful cinematographer to work with. And you've seen the, the results are just stunning. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that, again, it's right what you know, but it's also right what you have access to. <laughs> you know, so, you know, Brian's room is this room. We're sitting in it. <laughs> So literally we rearranged the bookshelves, filled it with candles and a few kind of cool props. And you know, the lovely thing is, you know, you know, the props are a lot of the occult books that we have access to. So, you know, now we know it's a 4K kind of screener. So, you know, there's a lot of detail in there that we know that nerds are going to sit there and kind of go through those different pieces, little inner eggs that we've set up in there. Because, and people do comment on that, which is lovely. So the detail that you do, the levels of detail that you go to are appreciated. Um, for people like us as well. So, <laughs> so that's a nice thing. And so it means that the ask that we have isn't too extreme in terms of getting people's backyards or getting people's uh, props, you know, getting some props made, some key props and things like that, that we can spend that little bit of money we've got to make that happen, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's about just being a little wise with what you have access to and what you know you can achieve. And I want to talk about your working relationship. Of course, you're you're in a partnership, not just a creative partnership, but a, you know, a partnership together and i'm curious how you manage your creative flow together as a, as a team what kind of discussions do you have how do you also then differentiate is there a, a point where you go all right we're out of the office we're not going to talk about work today uh let's you know return back to life is there is, do you have a point where there is a differentiation there no we kind of incorporate all the things into all the things, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. No one's ever asked that. That's an, interesting, that's an interesting question. No, we never switch off the creative stuff because that's just joyful. We've got to be able to do that in between, you know, children all the other and things. snacks and things like that. <laughs> yeah, just an idea for this thing. And then we'll kind of take turns to kind of disappear in a room and write some ideas down or do some edit. I'll, I'll look after the kids while she's doing some editing or whatever it might be. So we tag team a lot. A we lot. have to. Yeah. But I guess part of the part of the experience that was so joyful for me is that, you know, when we met like five years ago, you know, Amelia started telling me some of the ideas that she had. Now she'd been a very experienced performer and a singer and all that sort of stuff. But as I started to kind of plumb into the kind of darker, weirder side of her brain and see how it matched mine, this is like, you know, that's a great idea. She goes, oh, no, it would never work. And I go, trust me, it would. So during COVID, or just before COVID, she said, we said, okay, let's get a couple of ideas together so you can flex your muscles, you know, writing something, directing something, da, da, da. so she took to it like a duck to water. And, um, and there was no problem in, in kind of, and because, again, we have access to all the tools, she picked up editing. She, you know, she worked on the writing side, but she will always take again, this neurodiverse thing, she will always take instruction as to, okay, that's not going to work because of this reason. And she goes, okay, throws it out. 
it's not one of those things where ego comes into it at all. So it's a very easy part of the relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And she's continued to kind of just learn really quickly. So when it came to the editing of this, the, the you know more experienced hands around us were kind of going, oh, no, we'll leave that to a professional. And she'll go, no, no, I'll, I'll do it. And she taught herself the system. She taught herself resolve. She taught herself the sound design aspects of it now. Now she's doing it, the 5.1 mix. And it's like literally with the tools that we have around us, we can create so much stuff that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I started doing things, there was no chance of doing that. So a little bit of a control. It's funny because a lot of, uh, and, and fair enough, a lot of people heard me saying, well, I'll, I'll do that bit and I'll do that bit and I'll do that bit. And I'm like, you can't handle that many things or you're too new to it and I'm like just trust and luckily they did because I really enjoyed all of those processes but um including the catering (laughs) she was like we had a couple of wonderful assistants work on the catering with us Jess and and, uh, Ashley but you know she said no the meal plan is going to be this and it's all vegan so we wanted a sustainable chef as well so she I needed to keep the prices down I needed to keep everybody feeling full but light and I wanted to keep a, a vegan set as well. So I, I figured handling it myself would be easier and much cheaper. So I did that as well. But this is the thing. It's a neurodiverse thing. If I can't sit still, I might as well be doing something interesting. So that's why I get myself to do But back to the question about you and I working together. We're very, very lucky and we do realise how rare it is. We consult each other on pretty much everything we do. Um, and we're very similar in a lot of ways. So he can start a script and I can finish it or vice versa. And he could direct and I can take over. Or, or there, there are also many places where the other is more suited to the job or whatever job that is. And so, you know, we will we'll step, step, back, and step back and let that person shine for that moment because that's the, the better. We just... It's a good synergy. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly rare and, um, you know, something that we want to be able to kind of push forward and do with, with other projects as well. And, you know, I guess proof in the pudding in terms of being able to do this, get it over the line and then create a film festival around it to showcase it at the cinema here recently was, a, yeah. again, a wonderful opportunity. That Again, council going, you put this whole show on as well as opposed to just like, here's your finished film, go away sort of thing. It's like, no, no, we put on a you know, an enormous night at the, the local <laughs> cinema that we have here. And they're like, okay, you know, we trust you to do kind of a lot of things now, which is fantastic. Yeah. And they've kind of opened the door for us to be able to say, okay, how can you help us do more creative work in this region? And yeah. it's, that's, it's that's awesome. a proof. That's amazing. Yeah, really cool. Tell, talk to me about the film festival as well. Congratulations on, on getting that up on the ground. What was the decision process behind that too? Well, we had to, so um, the funding that we were given from Creative Arts Central from Central Coast Council, part of the contractual arrangement was that we had to present the film, the finished product, by a certain date. And this was true of three films. The other two were documentaries. So I think it was six different people got the funding. There was two sets of funding amongst us. There was the emerging artist who got 10 grand and there was a professional artist who got 20 grand and we all went off and did did our various things. There were composers, artists, set designers, all photographers, all all different kinds of things. In the year that we got our funding, Funding, so too did um, Tony Houston, who did a documentary, and and uh, Kay Harrison, who also did a documentary, and we all had to present our film on the same night. So now I'm thinking, a horror film and two documentaries. How are we going? <laughs> How are we going to present that on the back? You know what? Let's just go for it. And we decided we're just going to go for it. We're going to rather than just have it on the cinema screen. Why don't we make it a, a film festival? Let's go. Central Coast doesn't have one. Let's go and um, get pull out the red carpet and, and make it a bit fancy fancy and and we handled all the marketing and and you know the the design and all that kind of stuff and 
it just made it gave it a little bit of extra thrill than just popping it on the cinema screen and it also opened up the opportunity to continue postal surge film festival for, for the following year which is the intention now except we're planning it's still in planning stage but we're thinking what we'll do is three nights one for drama one for documentary and one for music videos because there's a large musician uh, network of musicians on the central coast as well and they all have their own music video clips mm -hmm. and we think that needs a bit of attention as well so um the, the, the council sound quite excited by that and so we'll, we'll keep plotting away for that to, to happen but yeah it was it was very cool yeah I'm excited to keep working with it it's it's a really nice opportunity to be able to have access to you know a lot of things where people in Sydney, you know, and I started making films, people like, yeah, sure, whatever. But then everything became very rules bound, insurances and this and that. And of course, you know, they're, they're common sense things, but the idea of no has suddenly become an idea of yes up here and the permission to be able to do things is suddenly there again. And that's such a joy for a filmmaker because we only get to do the things that we want to do if people, including locations, governments, mm. you know, are basically there to be able to say, we can't offer you a million dollars, but we can and give you access to this place to film whatever it might be. Yeah. So uh, this cinema or this location. And so we've been getting a lot of help from council and um, mm. that's that's invaluable. Yeah. Mm. Which leads into a night of horror as well, of course. And it is important that not only, you know, a film supported, but genre films are supported. How important is it to have that kind of support and an avenue to screen a genre film like this with an audience in front of people? Oh, it's enormously important. It's everything, in fact. It's the whole point is is the audience. The audience and the audience reaction is the whole reason that you do any of this, really. Without the audience, it doesn't exist. You've done nothing, you know? So um, being in a, a, a genre, being able to present in a, um, in a, a genre festival as well really matters because you're immediately with the audience who knows and likes it and is drawn to it. You know, horror is... It's not for everyone. It's not everyone's taste, but when you are actually in a horror film festival, you've, you've already got your entire appreciative audience, which is fantastic. The question will be, you know, sometimes with the horror, horror audiences that they're more attuned to your gory kind of slasher stuff and or the hammer stuff, and then some of them don't mind a bit of comedy because, because we sit in the light, the light end of the, the, the horror and more in the comedic side of, of horror. There'll, there'll be niche audiences within the horror genre audiences who, who prefer this over other things, that kind of thing as well. But at least you've arrived to a festival with exactly the kind of audience that you need. Mm. And that's awesome. And, you know, genre is really important in Australia. Genre films have been at the head of Australian success. Yeah, the last, last you know, 10 years, I think, since the, the Babadook kind of kicked open the door to you know, funding bodies to be able to say, oh, we can take this genre seriously now as opposed to it being, um, you know, the dark horse. Yeah. Suddenly everyone's like, okay, now this can be responsible and respectable and elevated. They love that word, elevated. Yeah, Jennifer Kent opened doors for all of us. And now we've got Talk To Me. Wow. I mean, wow. And that's that's massive global success. And mm. that's opened the genre door even, even wider, really. It's now long open and we're ready to come on through. And part of that is going to be an interesting experience, too, because something like Talk To Me has not just opened the door for more horror in Australia, but it's opened the door for Australian accents, really quite broad Australian accents, mm. that for so long, as you know, well, like for Boaton, as far as, um, you know, uh, international distribution was concerned, yeah. oh, no, you've got to make an, an American science fiction film or whatever it might be, you know. So for us, it was like, okay, that's that's quite clearly opened the door for um, international, international audiences for Australian accents. Now, with what we want to do with Mother Tongue is to be able to use this as a pitch document to take it out because of its, its, its 
feedback from people. It's just like, well, we're, there's more in this world. We want to see more in it. And we say, well, you know, it was going to be a feature, but let's let's expand that out to um, to a series now. So we're looking yeah. at the picture as an eight-parter to a stand or to a <clears throat> to an Amazon or something like that. We can do locally with a bit of international support. And I think follow the model of a bit of talk to me, but also in the, in the series side of things that what we do in the shadows, you know, that kind of tonal reference to horror and comedy and, mm. and, and populist at the same time. But also Deadlock. Deadlock has been extraordinary because it's got that Australiana touch. It's got that charming Australian, you know, chill and funniness about it, humour about it. It is also, at the same time, really dark content. It's really hard stuff that's being looked at there whilst being also it's it's pretty much i mean it, i'd call it more of a thriller than a horror really but it's um it's got that you know layering of comedic that i think australians are it's a comfortable space for us mm. to make everything light and slightly comedic. and that's the bit of australia i think the rest of the world really likes so that's why deadlock is just doing so well apart from being brilliant brilliant acted and, and shot and all that kind of thing as well. I think the world is ready for that lightness to come out and the fact that they're appreciating the Australian accent now and the Australian landscape as well, which Deadlock does really well as well. Mm. It's prime time for us to do a Central Coast shoot for Mother Tongue. Mm. And back to Night of Horror, I think it's so important that festival's run, running now since uh, 2008, so it's it's one of our longest-running festivals. And um, and again, having been to it, you know, the open nights and, and seen a lot of films over the last 10 years, it's an extraordinary and a really rare kind of opportunity mm. to see stuff that we're not going to get to see in Australia. Yeah. And um, to be able to kind of have Australian-only competitions there as well so that the, the, the you know, new generation of filmmakers are actually have the opportunity to get a little dark and get a little funky and yeah. uh, get it on the screen. And and as Amelia was saying before, the idea of seeing something on the big screen is so extraordinary. As you're talking about the Australian accent and, you know, one of the questions which I love asking Australian filmmakers is how important it is for the Australian identity to be explored on screen. And it's, for some people, it's like, oh, we don't want to do that. And for others, it's like, it, it is everything. But I'm curious if you can talk about how important is it for you both as creative people working in Australia, and not just in a filmic sense, but also with a film festival and the artwork that you've done before as well. I'm curious how important it is to explore what it is to be Australia through your art. It's funny, uh, back when I was a city girl, uh, before I moved up to the Central Coast a few years ago, I would have been less inclined to make Australian accent content, to be honest. But having moved to the Central Coast and really become a part of that more Australian scene, more typical Australian suburban scene like we were talking about before, I now want that story told a lot more because it's um, got such harm to it. I think it is really, really important because we've got so many cliches out, cliches out there you know, the Crocodile Dundee cliche and that kind of thing about Australian characters. And to this day, you'll see an Australian char cam um, character cameo pop up in a, a film every now and then. And it's that same, like, full-on Outback style <laughs> Crocodile Dundee thing, which is fun and it's great. But if that's all that's being portrayed, it's a bit of a shame because Australia has so much more to give um, and so much more to offer, so much more character, so many more layers. Um, so for me, it's... It's good to be able to tell a more genuine, typical Australian story. For me, I lived in London for six years and I've travelled around, you know, Australia a fair bit. We like the bush and we like to get out and camping and stuff like that. So I've, I've seen a lot and tasted a lot and filmed a lot around Australia. It was only when I lived overseas that I really missed it in a really particular kind of way and I started to write 
outback stories, outback films and things like that to, that really reflected part of that that natural kind of energy that, and it's a dark kind of energy too. And I think it's rare that you see it on screen. Now I was talking to another writer friend the other day and it's just like when you get that opportunity to do something like a, oh, what was that wonderful film made by uh, Ted Koch of Wake and Fright back in the 70s, which is a really bleak side of that kind of dark, side of, of Australia that no one expected, no one saw coming, you know, because we'd celebrated this bush mythos kind of Jeddah mentality for so many years. Then this comes along, you know, made by a Canadian, but really kind of got to that dark heart of Australia, that there's a wonderful ugliness there that we're yet to tap into. And I guess Amelia's kind of done that so beautifully with someone like Brian, because on the outside, he's, he's an incel, and he's the sort of character we should despise. But he ends up being the hero we didn't know we needed in a way. And and that's a wonderful kind of levelling uh, idea to be able to take uh, an expectation we might have about a characteristic or a, or an identity and then flip it and give it some shading or another colour. When you sat down to create Mother Tongue, what was the audience that you had in mind? Was it yourselves? Did you say this is a film for us that we want to see and there's got to be other people? Or was there a specific group that you had in mind that you thought that might be the people who this is getting made for? Um, for me, the first part is, is all, it's all about how it lands to people. I, I, I use a particular term that some filmmakers kind of get, get a bit of a rise out of, it, but it's uh, it's pissing in a wetsuit. You know, making films can be a little bit like um, creating a nice little warm centre for yourself that never reaches anybody else. So for me, I really rail against that. I, I really do. You know, want to do that, be a poet, that's fine, go ahead. But um, I've always believed in test audiences for example even when i was shooting stuff back on film you know and that's an expensive part of the process you show the film you edit the film you screen it in front of people if something's not working for legitimate reasons you're always going to have you know varied opinions but um, if something's not working you fix it and when it does land and you know we've now both had the luxury of seeing things when they do land mm. for an audience and there's there's a hush in the audience. There's a power. There's a dynamic in the room. It's like a cathedral all of a sudden. Yeah. And uh, you're you're more. The film is more than some of its parts. Combine that with the audience, and suddenly you do create this sense of magic. And so for me, that files into every sense about authenticity. And so I mean, you're telling the stories like, okay, make sure that people can relate to it. And even if that's hard work, you want to make sure that there are really good handholds. And that comes down to comedy and identifiable characters so that people feel like they're part of the journey and they want to go with you. Yeah, I mean, for me, my plan from the very beginning was to reach as many people as possible. And that was why, part of the reason why it was so important that we covered drama and comedy and and along with the horror, that we, that we didn't go so far into gore or anything like that that we cut off half of the audience. Because I myself, I'm not a huge gore fan either, to be honest with you. I love horror, but there's certain realms I don't like going into. It's not my thing. But to be honest with you, too important were, were these messages that I was wanting to portray, you know, about parenting and about representation of the LGBTQIA plus community by having relationships so present so regularly in, in film and, and television content that it becomes normalised. And only when it's normalised do people start relaxing and not having a big of an, an issue mm. around those things. And so it was too important, too many things that I felt were important to get out there to make it niche. So I needed to be able to make it widely watchable. Mm. So that's why humour, that's why, I, I, to be honest with you, I think it was actually really important that I'd been through a reproduction journey myself, and I know several people who have, 
and I've been through the parenting thing myself and I know lots of people who have and so having that real experience that lived experience and also being a queer woman I think that was really valuable so that there was a, a genuine story you know it's not my story but it's it's got enough of the reality of the um those situations in it to to be to, to to reach the people who've been through similar things and to really feel the the genuine story that's in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what was important so um yeah I wanted to reach as many people as possible. There's going to be some people who don't watch anything that's horror. That's fine. We're going to lose some of the audience. That's just just how it is. You know, just like there'll be some people who don't want to watch anything with an LGBTQIA plus couple in it, and we don't want them anyway. Um, <laughs> but for everyone else, I thought it was really important to make it a holistic story that could reach pretty much anyone. I, I do want to touch on there's a there's a character moment which is it's almost a spoiler in a way but it is it is such a powerful moment where you know the two characters are sitting there and they're talking about basically why is it that Alex is the one that's got to be the carrier of the child and there is a beautiful moment that you have that your response says so much which is just you know why and it's quite powerful in that that moment and i'm curious how important it is to have that kind of uh emotional touchstone that you can grab onto to show the emotional depth that is in this story and why it's actually taking place how important was that as uh, for you as a performer but also for a character sense to be honest, that was my little selfish moment. I really, really wanted that message in there. It didn't actually need to be in the story. It wasn't actually a necessity to the story, but that was that moment where I personally take a lot of issue with the idea that just because a woman has a womb, she has to use it or feel comfortable using it or, or that kind of thing. And I really wanted to hammer home this that it's not necessarily an option just for the other person to, to take on um, being pregnant. It's a big deal. And Jade's character, whether she, and it's not really discussed, and I don't, I want it to be open for people to, to take their own perspective, but whether she be a bit gender fluid or whether she just not be comfortable with that part of her person being used in that way, whatever it is, women get a choice. And what's important to them is what matters and that's it. And, and it's all about that people being able to choose for their own bodies. And I wanted to, I really wanted to hammer that home. It was also, I think, a really important part in the story of Alex and Jade because it showed just a little bit of the tension between them, but also how they can come together even beyond the tension. And so it did it did aid the story. But to be honest with you, I, I was a bit like, that's my bit and I'm keeping it in. Yeah, we we didn't now we we both saw that as a really important anchor to the film. We didn't we didn't argue about that scene at all. I think we no. just we just wanted to make sure that was as kind of realistic as possible, yes. you know, amongst all of the other kind of craziness that goes on that little scene anchors a lot of it i think it bolts it to the floor it really does they knocked it out of the park with the performance on it again the, the lines just spoke for themselves they knew what to do once they got in there and uh, it was really up for us to just kind of step back and let the magic happen and uh, it was a credit to you guys to do that and congratulations for you both on on creating not only a wonderful film but also you know a film festival and getting into another film festival it's like this creative journey is just beginning and i'm excited to see where it goes from here and you know the journey into being turned into a tv series as well is going to be very exciting so yeah congratulations you've you've got a lot to be proud of <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much andrew that's amazing and uh you know coming from a, a genre fan like yourself they're, they're big words so thank you 
one of the other things that's going to be interesting moving forward, I think, in terms of the way that we frame shorts versus uh, features. And so obviously the question that we had initially to say, you know, it's going to be hard to program it into film festivals because of its length, you know, because they want something five to ten generally, you know, that's a happy place to build a 90-minute program. But the other option is with streaming. And I'm curious to see... If, you know, so that's why I think we should start talking about this as a short feature as opposed to um, limiting it to a short because it's always going to have, uh, you know, an existence that lives there and only there. But with streaming these days, with the length of films. And also with audiences having Choice. less and less time. Yeah, it's only to be able to get out there, like you said, you know, take a leaf out of uh, Fight Club's book and compress a big story into a smaller piece. Don't waste people's time. Just get in there and say, we're in, tell a great story, get out again. And there's 40 minutes done as opposed to, you know, an hour and a half. I think moving forward, if the streamers, depending what happens with the, with the strikes in the US and everything like that, but we do as filmmakers, I think, have options to start changing the dialogue around that sort of thing now to say, yeah, it's not a 90-minute film. It's a 50-minute film or whatever it might be. It's starting to happen already. The space between kind of 35 minutes and 90 minutes, uh, more more like 50 minutes, nobody really knows what to call it. And it's kind of extended short or short feature yeah. but that space i think is going to become a more regular yeah i think we, thing. Can, we can start rewriting those uh, those rule books a little bit but now it's getting the yeah the uh, the forces that be on side and the screen in australia so it's like oh it doesn't fit in that box doesn't fit in this box but the, the signal difference between european mentality of film festivals mm-hmm. and america having been to both is like you go to europe and it's just like oh no we celebrate the short film festival as its own they uh, get their me. own, yeah. And it's like, it's not just a prelude to a feature, which is this very Australian and very US mentality. Great, you've done your short, where are you going next? You know, wh- what's the next plan? And you know? in fact, the short film festivals are as heavily audienced as... In the, Europe, yeah. yeah. yeah so huge Europe understand that, and they, they go with it. I'm hoping, I, I, and I think we will actually head in that direction too with our audiences, our younger audiences, that they're going to take over soon. <laughs> and we all know that they have very short snips. Of, of entertainment in the TikToks and, and, and whatnot. Gosh, I sound like an old person. So I think with that audience coming through who are very used to quick, snappy and thoroughly entertaining content, <clears throat> we're going to have to all get on board with the shorter, shorter form film. Yeah. yeah. Watch this space. It's going to be an interesting ride, I think. The next, the next 20 years are going to be very exciting shifts, including in AI. Everything is going to shift in, in a monumental way and it's just ready to ride that way. <laughs> Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your glow with your favorite personal care products. Right now with Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products. Like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details.